0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. I am super excited to announce that today is episode 4-day! And that is a 4 0 if you didn't make that out. Um, very exciting, huge milestone, almost a 50. Gonna have to have a huge party when that happens. Um, but today's 40, and I'm fucking stoked. Um, for any new listeners, we are a podcast that celebrates awesome women and mediocre wine, which we <laughs> enjoy because that's mainly all we can afford. Um, and if you aren't following us, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Mimosa Sisterhood. And we are also on Twitter at Mimosa Hood, um, but I'm not really a Twitter fan, so you're probably best off following me on the gram. Also, we have a website, www.mimosasisterhood.com. There's a lot of good shit on there, so be sure to check it out. And I'm freaking stoked to welcome back one of our guests, who we were already honored to have on the show for episode 36, and she's returning for the big four zero. So say another hello to Kelsey McKinnis.
1: Hello! I am so excited to be back, and excited that I got to come back so soon. I really weaseled my way in there. (laughs) I think I jumped a few people in (laughs) life. Well, that's what happens when you are a roommate of the owner of the podcast for almost a decade. (laughs) I am in for life, yes. Um and I'm excited that I'm here for the big 40. I didn't even realize that would be I'm, the case. I know.
0: It's pretty exciting. Um it's funny because ever since I like opened the platform for guest hosts, I am overwhelmed by the amount of people <laughs> that are actually interested in doing this.
1: Um <laughs> That is amazing. My gut response is happiness for you and also like panic for me that I'm like, oh, shit, I better start looking for my next person so I can get on again.
0: Well, that's what I was telling um, one of my other close friends, Allie. I was like, hey, like, love you, but you're like at the end of the line right now. You're at the back of the bus. Like, I can't squeeze you until end of May. Sorry. I'm really glad I got in when I did. So, yeah, that's really funny. but, um, again, we are accepting guest hosts. So, if you are a fan of the podcast and have always dreamed to drink wine and talk about an awesome woman, give me a call, hit me up. Um, we can add your name to the list and get you on the show. So, even though we haven't technically had a podcast conversation in quite a while, I actually have seen you recently. Yes. Um, when we booty twerked in Las Vegas <laughs> at a bachelorette party, and let me just tell all the listeners, no sooner did we get back from that bachelorette party <laughs> in Vegas was the entire world, um, yeah. turned off, basically. Yes. <laughs> it's like, one moment we were raging balls in, like, the party, you know, town of the Touching entire world. Catching all the dirty poker chips and
1: nasty <laughs> slot machines.
0: In and out of <laughs> gross bars, eating food yep. on the side of the road. Like, we're, I mean, we were in Vegas and literally we walking got home, home barefoot. <laughs> walking <laughs> barefoot. We got home, what, in a week after that? It, yeah. it was just, it blew up. Yeah. So, um, and, and then everybody lost their job. So I'm like, yes. what in the fucking world just happened? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. How did that happen? Like literally we were all out living a great life and then we got home and everything exploded.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about that, um, on my walk today. And as I was thinking about my, my person that I'm talking about and just like these big historical events that people live through and just imagining that like, you know, one day and 20 years or whatever, we're going to be telling our children about this fucking pandemic that we lived through. And not to say that people haven't lived through much worse, but like, it's certainly nothing that I ever expected to, to see. It's bizarre.
0: Well, I was really surprised because I, I think this actually changed literally today, but over the past month, it looked like in San Francisco, the beaches were still open. And in LA, they've been completely closed for a month, and if, like, Mm -hmm. literally the bike path is closed, the parking lots, the sand, the water, everything, and people that have been caught, like, surfing are getting fined up to, like, $1,000, I think.
1: I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. they closed all the parking lots at the beaches, and I think the, the sentiment there, which I can appreciate, is that, you know, they're saying, shelter in place, and you are able to go outside to get exercise in places that are walkable for you. And it sucks because the beach is walkable to tons of people that live close by, but people that don't have abused it, and now it will be closed for everyone. So, like, literally
0: everything in L.A. is locked down, from parks to, you know, uh, trails to hillsides to Mm -hmm. beaches to literally everything. And so, no joke, people are... Sunbathing on like oh, the I tiny, saw- the, teeny, <laughs> on tiny your <laughs> the tiniest little patch of grass that exists oh, on the other side God. of sidewalks. <laughs> like it's a thing. I'm seeing it all the time, and I'm going like on these daily walks around the neighborhood to get vitamin yeah. right D. And I'm like, oh, there's another sunbather on the sidewalk. Like it's th- there's nowhere else to go without getting fined
1: a thousand dollars. Yeah, that is bonkers. So speaking of sunbathing. I moved to this new apartment back in October, and now, you know, the times change, and it says light out really late, and I have learned that during the, like, amazing witching hour from, like, 4.30 to 6.30, I can lay in my bed and sunbathe. What? <laughs> <laughs> no joke. I have this big-ass window and just get, like, the most, like beautiful, blinding, bright, warm sunlight from the West just, like, beaming onto my bed. And it, like, lines up perfectly that it only really hits my legs, which is, like, my shins forever white. I need sun on them all the time. (laughs) So every now and then I'll be watching TV and be like, oop, gotta take my pants off. Time to work on that tan. (laughs) Gotta get my sunscreen on. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Um, But, yeah, I mean, people... Are resorting to crazy things. I mean, it's gonna be weird for a while.
0: Like, I went to a nursery last weekend, and it was an outdoor nursery, and I went to go pick up some herbs and vegetables, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just looking around at all the people in the nursery, there's such a wide range of coronavirus person. Like, sure, how they they feel about it. Who just has, like, a face mask on and is, like, browsing the plants, and then there's, like, You know, the people with the face mask and the gloves and, like, looking sketchy. And then there's, like, a lady who's standing there by the fucking orchids, and she's in a full-blown hazmat suit. Like, (laughs) and also has those emergency room, like, doctor scrubs around her shoes. Oh my
1: gosh. And I'm just like, um, for real? I hate when I see people... With the gloves on, because there's so much data that says that does nothing and is pointless. Mm. So I'm pretty, like, I carry my hand sanitizer, I wipe shit down, but I'm not, like, obsessive about, you know, going into a store and, like, oh my god, someone touched this, I can't grab it. Um, Yeah. But there definitely are people that that feel that way.
0: Well, and then the other thing that's, like, starting to really fucking get on my nerves is... Like, these people out in the neighborhood who are also either walking or going on a run who literally act like they're afraid I'm going to murder them by just being there. (laughs) Like, literally today, before this recording, I went on a walk down Main Street, and there's a million fucking people out walking right now. More people that have ever walked in their whole lives are walking right now in the middle of a quarantine. (laughs) And I don't wear my mask when I'm out walking in the neighborhood. Yes, I I understand that. And it's not mandatory where I'm at. We're only supposed to wear masks when we go inside businesses. But I come across these people on the streets who, the minute that they see me, I get this, like, instant look of just, like, horror. And then they're, like, like literally, like, hiding into the planner box of a house <laughs> waiting for me to pass by. And it's just, like, like, I don't yeah. know. I feel like there's, like, a fine line between, like, Sure, let's respect each other's space and recognize that, like, you know, we need to be sensitive to, like, not getting too close to each other, and then there's, like, the other extreme where you're literally glaring at me, you're having a panic attack as I'm, you know, five feet in front of you coming your direction, and now you're crouched down behind a bush as if I'm, like, about to come out and kill you. It's just like,
1: (laughs) fuck you, lady! I literally was so annoying. Like, get the hell off the streets, then, if you're that freaking out. So, um, I... Of course, followed next door very closely, which is really full of fascinating threads during this time. I have been trying to run a lot more, and I have also been biking a lot, and it fucking sucks to wear a mask when you are like heavily working out, but I have been wearing my like buff, which are those like ski kind of things you can pull oh, yeah, up and down. Yeah. So that when I feel like I'm a little close to someone and they might be concerned Mm -hmm. that I pull it up really quickly. Um, And I do go out of my way to get... I'm always the person to, like, run into the street or bike, like, get out of the other person's way. But I have felt very personally attacked by many of the threads (laughs) in Next Door that people are, like, outraged at the bicyclists and joggers who are just, like like, bossing and manning the streets and, like, plowing people over and not wearing masks and sweating all over everyone. And, like, people are very upset about it. I do have one other coronavirus update for you that I feel like you'll especially enjoy. <laughs> okay. Um Dating during coronavirus. Oh, what I, is that like? Well, I had a couple of Zoom Dates? <laughs> no way. With yes. strangers? Yeah. Oh, my God. Was, and let's get this. So, um, I ended up actually agreeing to meet one individual for a socially distanced walk. Oh, and my God. How does that work? We just met and walked far apart. <laughs> okay but hold on where were you
0: walking was one of you like five feet ahead of the other we were side by
1: side it was in golden gate park so there's room i would say that it's probably very likely that during much of our walk we were less than six feet apart but we were still much more socially distant than we would normally be there were also a fuck ton of people in golden gate park like no one was social distance or sheltering in place at golden gate park this weekend there were people like on hillsides that I've never seen people before. <laughs> I will say that's probably more so attributed to the fact that they were trying to spread out, which I can respect, but like it was insane how many people were there. Oh my God. Um, but I don't want to get too into it because I did mention your podcast. So for the sake of the possibility of this person listening to it, um, I don't think it's going to work out. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, um, Liz. Uh, my friend also had done, like, a FaceTime date, and both of us did agree that it's actually a very great, like, first step in dating, especially with, like, online dating, that maybe should actually stick around after corona. It's just a good way to, like, pre-screen somebody. Like, you really can't get to know somebody from, a, I mean... Definitely not from a Tinder profile. I will say I haven't been on Tinder in many years. (laughs) Hinge is pretty much the only thing that I use. And I'm terrible at online dating. I log on, like, once every three weeks. And then try and, like, spit my game at people who messaged me, like, two and a half weeks ago. (laughs) Like, oh, where have you been? Oopsies. Um, But it is just, like, a good opportunity to, like, feel somebody out. Don't have to get all crazy dressed up. Don't have to, like, easy out, right? You're not, like, having to come up with an excuse to leave if you're at, like, a restaurant yeah. or a bar. Um, yeah, I was totally a proponent of it. I was really hesitant at first, but when you meet someone for the first time, there's always this, like, kind of, like, physical tension, right? Like, is something going to happen? Are you going to kiss or something like yeah. that? And maybe you're going to go home together. I don't know. Not going to happen here. <laughs> and- <laughs> But what I find interesting is that I have definitely been in positions, and it goes both ways, where you're either, like, really into someone physically, but you get to know them more, and you're like, ooh, no, I'm not about you. Yep. Like, I feel like, the, like someone's personality actually changes their physical appearance or your physical attraction to them, so... On the flip side of that, maybe you meet someone online and you're not, like, initially, like, super attracted to them. And if it were in person, you might feel, like, ooh, like, the pressure of, like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck, is he going to try and, like, make a move on me? Yep. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But maybe over time, you actually, like, build that relationship and start to feel that way about them, right? Kind of Who like goes? the reality show Love is Blind. Oh, my God. Hannah tried to get me to go on <laughs> 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 like, bitch, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> I'm... <laughs> She she was like, why? I was like, I actually have no problem with, like, the entire concept of it, but I will never go on television to broadcast my love experience.
0: Do you remember when I tried to sign Nikki up for Married at First Sight and I filled out, like,
1: 90% of the online application? Oh, God. (laughs) That reminds me, unrelated but also funny, when Hannah and I were in Portland for, um, my like 28th birthday, I think, a couple years ago, she took a naked fit picture of me in the hotel. Like nothing like raunchy, but I was like had <laughs> champagne and was like getting ready. And then we were at lunch later and she was like obsessing over making a match profile for me for like match.com. Which I was like, I'm not 40. Like we're not there yet. <laughs> but she was adamant. And then she tried to jokingly like fuck with me. Like she was making that naked photo my profile picture. And she did Oh, and, like, my God. It was only, I'm sure, like, a matter of, like, <laughs> minutes before we realized. But, like, for a brief moment in time, I had a match profile with my naked photo on <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> well, let's hope that doesn't suddenly resurface ten years down the line. Yeah, and don't. Do any weird naked shots for your Zoom chat, because everyone can take screenshots these days, okay? (laughs) If anyone out there is going to online date, just remember, that shit's not just in real time. Nope, it is not. Well, should we dive into the wine review? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, this is going to be a long episode. We're not even there yet. (laughs) We could do the wine review quickly. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. You can go first. Okay,
0: so I have recently been trying to kick up my rosé wine game Love a and i don't vibe. i really don't know shit about rosés it's it's not my specialty mm-hmm. so i just randomly grabbed this one at the store based off how cute the label was and i honestly didn't even read a single word on the label <laughs> other than the fact that i saw it said rosé wine and that it's was all tactic, i needed to know yeah. <laughs> Now, if I had read it, I probably would have been, you know, prepared for how sweet it was going to end up being. Um, But, you know, I'm enjoying it enough for a sweet rosé, which isn't typically my go-to wine. But for my starter out, like, rosé wine, it's not horrible. So, I'm drinking... Free Rain by
1: Free Spirit Wines. And it's a right, California wine. Ooh, I do very much like that bottle.
0: It's super cute. It has all these super cute flowers on it. Mm-hmm. Um, And according to the label, this is more than a bottle of wine. It's a conversation oh. starter, a crowd pleaser, a statement. I mean,
1: here we are. It's. <laughs> It sounds right.
0: Oh, we're not done, though. Oh. Please carry <laughs> you, on. You're ready to impress, and you've got free reign to do it your way. So that's what I'm drinking, some free okay. reign today. And I actually um, pre-gamed before Ooh. the rosé with a Blackberry White Claw. Okay. And I have to admit, Blackberry White Claw and Free rain rosé wine – Pair very well together. It sounds
1: like a, a match made in heaven, really. <laughs> it really is. Well, tonight I have another grocery outlet favorite. <laughs> so for any of you who may have missed episode 36, you can tune in to hear all the tricks of the trade to purchasing your wine at the grocery outlet. One of those tricks is seeing how much that wine previously cost before it was discounted. Yep. And the other is the use of the Vivino Wine App, which I'm a big fan of because I know nothing about wine. So I actually went to Grocery Alley this morning. I had a We have um, a work conference call every Thursday that's like an hour that's just my CEO giving updates that I don't participate in. So I use it as a time to like run errands <laughs> or like go on a bike ride while I listen <laughs> to the phone call. so i was like oh i'll go to ups i need to drop something off and then i'll go to grocery outlet and get my wine for tonight so i was using the vivino app i had scanned like 15 bottles of that's probably an exaggeration like eight bottles of wine so after a lot of of failed scans um i turned to cathedral creek cab Sauv 2017 which is one of my faves um, yeah. that they do often have at the grocery outlet. So it's one of my go-to's that I pick up when I'm there. So, and what is that price point at? So I actually should go dig my receipt out of the trash can. <laughs> I know that the cost at grocery outlet does not exceed six ninety nine because that <laughs> is above the price range that I will spend there. Um, I want to say it's about five ninety nine. And it probably retails closer to, like, 15 or something. Oh! I really need to fucking
0: get on this grocery outlet game.
1: Oh, I should read you what it says on this label. See the wooded path? Don't hesitate. Take it. Listen for the trickling <laughs> water and rustling reeds. That's where you'll find it. Sanctuary. A second untouched by the chaos of life. Wherever you are, let Cathedral Creek find you.
0: Dang. And let me tell you
1: that seems like a really suitable fit for my woman that i have today that was the first time i ever read this so it was meant to be
0: cool um also who are all of these wine label writers and how can i get in contact with them that would
1: i feel like that would be a great job that or making greeting cards two things i would love to do as a profession
0: Alright, well solid wine review. I say we dive the fuck in. Let's do the same. Alright, I'll I'll get us started. Okay. So, last time we recorded, I said that I selected my woman specifically because I thought that you might like her. Yes, you did. And then, coincidentally, the woman I picked for tonight, you're gonna like even more. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That is fantastic. And... If anything, this lady is more in line with you than the last one is. So I feel like I really hit it out of the ballpark. Okay, all right. Well, tonight I am covering Miss Terry Irwin. Which oh, you- uh, I love that <laughs> if you can recognize by the last name. Um, she's an American-Australian conservationist an author, and the owner of Australia Zoo, who is most famously known for being the widow of the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin. Hell yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, I'm here
0: for this. And the reason why I'm covering Terry Irwin is because a few weeks ago, I was like a weekend day, and we were at the house, and we were like bored to death, and there was nothing on TV and Mm -hmm. nothing to do. And somehow we stumbled upon, like, an entire day's marathon of Crocodile Hunter, (laughs) but it was a, um, like, a remembrance tribute. Yeah. And so it was Terry and this other dude who was, like, his partner and best friend, and they were basically the hosts of this tribute series, and they were, like going back to old episodes and watching clips of the episodes, and then her and him would, like, comment on, like, oh, I remember this episode, deet-deet, dot da deet, dot deet. oh my god, look at Steve here. So it was, like, really cool, because it's it was actually filmed of, like, Terry in today's time. Yeah. Kind of reflecting back on, like, them when they were in their early 20s, and, like, you know, getting started into Crocodile Hunter, and just kind of reflecting on all the good memories. And I'd, like, I guess... I mean, I've always known who Steve Irwin is, but I don't think I ever watched, like, a lot of his Crocodile Hunter television show. hmm Um, and that's... I feels... don't think I
1: really have either.
0: Well, he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like... I mean, I think, like, you know, when you see, like, snapshots of, like, clips of him, you're like, oh, that guy, that funny Aussie guy, that crazy guy in the khakis, always saying yeah. funny shit. But, like, actually watching episodes, he did ballsy-ass shit. And, like, we watched, like, ten of them in a row.
1: <laughs> I know what I'm doing this weekend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, it was really funny, and then after our marathon, I was like, Terry's freaking cool. I want to know Hell more yeah. about her, and
1: I want to cover on the podcast. I'm really excited you are, because honestly, when you first said her, I actually thought you were talking about his daughter, because she's who I do hear about and see on, like, social media and stuff sometimes, and I'm sure you'll talk about her a little bit. Yes. But I'm very excited to learn more about his widow, because I know nothing about her.
0: Yeah, I didn't actually know anything about her either, and she is a
1: fucking badass,
0: Fuck yeah. And I love
1: that I mean when I... you have to be to be married to Steve Rotten, right?
0: Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but I love when I like come across a woman and I'm like, Ooh, I think I want to cover them on the podcast. Let me do some research. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. I had Hell no yeah. idea. Hell yeah, I'm covering you on the podcast. <laughs> so let's get started. So Terry was born in nineteen sixty-four in Eugene, Oregon, and she was the youngest of three daughters to environmentalist parents named Clarence and Judy Rains. Terry recalls growing up as a free range kid, which is partly why I picked the free reign rose wine. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, And her summers were spent bicycling around parks and hiking through hillsides looking for rattlesnakes. Her family owned a trucking business, and her father would frequently bring home injured animals that he found along the highway during his travels. So naturally, (laughs) this kick-started Terry's lifelong commitment to saving and rehabilitating wild animals. He literally would, like, see roadkill and, like, throw him in the back of the truck and bring him home to help them. So, in 1982, at 18 years old, somehow, Terry was able to purchase her first house in Eugene, Oregon. What? (laughs) Then, two years later, at 20, she took over the family trucking business. Two years after that, at 22 years old, she started her own rehabilitation facility called Cougar Country to re-educate and release predator mammals such as foxes, raccoons, bears, bobcats, and cougars back into the wild. And soon she was handling up to 300 animals a year. Holy shit. 22 years old.
1: Like, really questioning all my life choices. Oh, it it continues. (laughs) It doesn't stop there.
0: (laughs) Then, later in 1988, she joined an emergency veterinary hospital as a veterinary technician to gain further knowledge on the care and support to all kinds of animals. So, at this time, she was 24 years old, running the family business, rehabilitating animals through her Cougar Country Center, And working at a vet hospital. And in addition to these three massive responsibilities, she also had 15 cats, several (laughs) birds, and a handful of dogs. Amazing. But if that wasn't crazy enough, she would donate her, like, personal pets Mm -hmm. to a children's zoo that would get set up in the park. Oh, my God. So she'd be like, oh, here are my 15 cats. Like, toss them into the zoo for the day and, like, have them there for the kids to, you know, look that. at and play at. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in 1991, she went on a tour of Australia um, specifically to go check out some of their, like, wildlife rehabilitation centers and while she was visiting, she had the chance of running into Steve Irwin, um, whose father had founded the Australia Zoo. So she was like pretty much immediately captivated by his enthusiastic aura, um, as well as his dark brown khakis, <laughs> and the fact that he talked so passionately about crocodiles. So she introduced herself and then realized very quickly that they both had um, shared a common interest in wildlife and conservation. Steve would later go on to say that it was love at first sight and a whirlwind romance. And Terry at once said, I thought there was no one like this anywhere in the world. He sounded like an environmental Tarzan, a larger than life superhero guy. So, Steve and Terry were engaged after only four months of knowing each other. Wow. And eight months later, they were married on June 4th in 1992 in Eugene, Oregon. And the wedding was huge, Um, and all of Terry's family and friends attended because it was also their last chance to say goodbye to her before she started her new life in Australia with Steve. So, Terry and Steve wasted no time beginning their life together, starting with their honeymoon, which was filmed as the first episode of their televised documentary called (laughs) The Crocodile Hunter. Did you watch that one this weekend? I I didn't, but it's so on my to-do list. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so the Crocodile Hunters very the television show's very first episode was their honeymoon. That is crazy. Which keep in mind is now only eight months after they even met.
1: Also in a time when like <sighs> reality television was not so popular. Like that wasn't such a normalized thing. Yeah. That's wild. Um but also like imagine meeting this crazy dude in
0: Australia, getting married, moving out there and kickstarting a reality show starting with your honeymoon
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, all in like 9 months. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, what the hell just happened? Oh, that is so, crazy. <laughs> so crazy.
0: Um so The couple settled in Australia shortly after their wedding, which sadly meant that Terry had to leave behind her cougar country project in the United States. But um, she believed that she made the right decision leaving the cougar country behind because she was able to do even larger scale and more great, like, Larger scale and greater types of work for wildlife conversation, um, once she'd met Steve and partnered with him and started their reality shows. And then in 1996 to 2007, Steve and Terry produced and hosted a total of 64 episodes of The Crocodile Hunter. They created and hosted a TV series called Croc Files, made (laughs) specifically for children, They released a movie called The Crocodile Hunter Collision Course. They published a book called The Crocodile Hunter, The Incredible Life and Adventures of Steve and Terry Irwin. And they partnered on a documentary called Ocean's Deadliest that explored the Great Barrier Reef and the Gold Coast. So they hit the ball running. (laughs) They didn't stop. After that honeymoon,
1: they kept going... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it just kept going and going and going um and then in addition to all of their career accomplishments they also had two kids they had their daughter named Bindi Sue who was born in 1998 and she was named after two of Steve's favorite animals the bindi saltwater crocodile and sue the family's bull terrier <laughs> that
1: is priceless Amazing. And,
0: and then in 2002, they had their son, Robert, who, sadly, I don't think had any cool I was names. just going to
1: say Robert. What the fuck?
0: <laughs> I know. And I feel bad because I was, like, trying to find more stuff about Robert, but he was just so young when all yeah. of this was happening. So he's sadly kind of not really much a part of the and, story. Sorry, what year did you say he was born? He was born in 2002. okay. And Bindi was born in 1998. Okay. So, needless to say, the Irwin family's wildlife shows brought the Australia Zoo to center stage, attracting visitors from across the world. But very sadly, as we all know, in 2006, Terry and her kids were trekking the Cradle Mountain, Tasmania, on the morning of September 4th when Steve was pierced through the chest by a short-tailed Stingray barb, killing him instantly. Um, And at the time, he was filming an underwater documentary collecting footage that would be used for Bindi's upcoming reality show called The Bindi in the Jungle.
1: So sad.
0: Um, Yeah, really fucked up. So, Steve's death is believed to be the only fatality from a stingray that's ever been captured on video, which Terry allegedly destroyed before the public or any of the family members would ever be able to see it. And it was reported... for her. It was reported to have been the only copy that existed. So, I mean, since they were filming his death, basically. Yeah. um, No one needs to see that. No one needs to see that. So Terry made Steve's memorial service open to the public under the condition that those who wish to attend would need to donate to Steve's Wildlife Warriors Fund. She planned for the service to be held at the Croc Museum, a, <laughs> a 5,000 seat open air amphitheater that Steve had built at the zoo. At the funeral, Terry was too upset to speak and remained very close to her two-year-old son, Robert.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: But her eight-year-old daughter, Bindi, did get up to speak, and she talked about the love that she had for her father, which resulted in a standing ovation from the crowd. Her eulogy was televised worldwide to an audience of more than 300 million viewers, and she was voted the televised moment of the year. Wow. Terry stated that apart from some assistance with typing, Bindi had written the speech all by herself. And she was eight? She was eight. Wow. And I thought long and hard about looking up that eulogy, and mm-hmm. I made the executive decision that I did not want to read it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, honestly, I think I would literally break down in tears.
1: Oh my gosh. And I, yeah.
0: I just don't even want to even see the words out of an eight-year-old's brain about the tragedy of losing our father, especially yeah. when he died filming something that was meant for yeah, her. Yeah, that
1: shocked me. I never knew that, that that's what he was doing when it happened, yeah. that it was for her documentary.
0: I, I'm i like, you know what? I'll take yeah. the internet's word that it was a great eulogy. Yeah. I don't want to... I, I no respect No, thank you. That. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. So, later that same year, in 2007, Terry published a memoir called My Steve that detailed her relationship and marriage to Steve Irwin, which I literally want to buy, like, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like, I... I'm like, these... These two are, like, literally power couple, like, dream couple. They're so great. They're so in love. And, like, more to come about that in the story. But, like, I am so curious to know even more about their strong relationship and would love to hear it out of, like, Terry's perspective because I couldn't even imagine.
1: Yeah. As soon as you referred to him as, like, an environmental Tarzan or whatever, (laughs) I was like, where do I find me one of those? (laughs) Terry, sister up. Your next trip should be (laughs) Australia, maybe. (laughs) I have to be. Um
0: after Steve's death, Terry picked up right where her and Steve had left off because it was what she had promised she would do. Many years later, she was interviewed on the topic and was quoted to say We had a deal that if he died first, I would keep everything going. So it was never really, am I going to do this? But it was more, oh my God, I am actually going to have to do this. And I was, to be completely honest, so very afraid. Mm. So Terry worked endlessly to complete her and Steve's ambitious plans for Australia Zoo, which involved a ton of conservation projects, a wildlife rescue hospital, the creation of a worldwide wildlife fund, and moving forward with Bindi's television show, which included many scenes of Steve that were filmed prior to his death. Wow! So she basically buried her husband and was like, I have to live out his legacy starting today. And that's what she did. (laughs) Um, She ended up winning the 2007 Queensland telstra business women's award i don't know what that is but it sounded good Uh, (laughs) i'll take your word for it business women's award i don't know it It sounds sounds good to me um, in 2008, she signed on to a three-year research program in correspondence with Australia Zoo, supporting the Marine Mammal Institute of Oregon State University, funding two $250,000 research projects on humpback whales.
1: Ooh. Do you have a humpback whale tattoo? Um, it's a blue whale. But oh. I still like the humpbacks. <laughs> <laughs> i see them way more frequently here
0: um, do you really SF.
1: yeah well not like i see them all the time but um back in 2017 i think not shitting you i could be like driving down um Lincoln boulevard like from the bridge down to baker beach and within a minute of looking out at the ocean i would see spouts and be able to find whales it was so crazy. crazy for like two months it was non-stop how
0: cool um, so she said learning about whales is a part of a bigger picture. Our oceans are in jeopardy and the more research we gather about whales, the more knowledge we have to help us save, protect and preserve our delicate oceans. In 2009, she became an Australian citizen. And the ceremony was held during the Steve Irwin Day celebrations in Australia Zoo, Croc Museum, (laughs) as a tribute to her husband. She was later made an honorary member of the Order of Australia for services to wildlife conservation and the tourism industry. And 13 years after Steve's death, Terry has achieved everything the couple was set out to do. Some of these achievements include the creation of the African savanna at the Australia Zoo, the Wildlife Hospital for Saving Southeast Tigers, Sumatran Elephants, and Tasmanian Devils. Since becoming a widow, there have been numerous rumors about her romantic affairs, some as obscene as her dating Hulk Hogan. (laughs) In fact... It seems as if the media in general is more interested in Terry's romantic life post-Steve than literally anything else she has going on. (laughs) The endless list of things I've already named off that she's been working on over the past, you know, decades that he's been gone and all the accomplishments that she's achieved. Um, the tabloids, the media, people just literally only care about who the hell she's seeing. That sounds Um, about right. They've come (laughs) up with some of the craziest list of guys. I think one of which was, um, fuck, I wish I wrote it down, but I was like, fuck that, who cares? But anyway, (laughs) it's been crazy. Hulk Hogan was the weirdest, which is why I I needed to reveal that. Any time that she's interviewed, it's one of the first things that they ask her. Oh my god! So that's, that's just so really, obscene. really obscene about our society and what yeah. what people prioritize as of important information in people's lives. Um, but in 2018, Terry told People Magazine that she mm. hadn't dated or had a relationship since her husband's death, and she was quoted to say, "There's always the potential to find love again." And that's a beautiful thing, but I had my happily ever after, so I'm doing okay. Oh, I love um, that. And most recently, in 2018, Terry and her kids Bindy and Robert created their own reality show based on their life at the Australia Zoo. The show is called Crikey! It's the Irons! <laughs> Crikey! <laughs> and after a successful first season, oh. it was renewed for a second season that took place, I think, in October of 2019. Um, not sure if it's going on for a third season, but that's what they've been up to. Um, also, Bindy got married. Oh, not I did not know that. Not sure if you that. know that. I did not. She actually got married, I think it was like four weeks earlier before the planned wedding date because of the coronavirus smart girl so her and her husband who i believe is a professional wakeboarder um
1: they seems like a good match
0: yeah they had to speed up the wedding and they had an impromptu teeny small wedding with just friends and family and now she's married. And so last I heard, I think their brother, Robert, outside of him being on this new reality show with his family, he's a photographer. Um, and as of today, everybody is alive and well and enjoying their moments together.
1: I love that. I That's feel, it. <laughs> I feel so interested and curious about the rest of the, the Irwin family now. But i know huh i'm i'm excited and also just steve urban i really like i've always known who he he was and i've seen you know some of his stuff but like you said i've never really watched his show like well so another, i have a renewed interest and
0: in, so another you know. interesting like how i had mentioned before i really couldn't find a ton of information on terry mm-hmm. and so i literally had to Google Steve to be like, to okay, the, let me bits. read your whole life story to see what I can pull about Terry from it. So I actually had to get a lot of that my info from him. Um, and I really like there were a lot of things that I want thought about discussing, but I didn't want to make I didn't I wanted it to be Terry. And I didn't want it to be... I I mean, obviously, I brought up Steve a lot and talked about things about him, but I really didn't want him... I didn't want him to overshadow Terry. Yeah. But one funny thing that I read about (laughs) that I think is worth mentioning, because it's just hilarious to me, is that, for the most part, everyone fucking loved Steve. They thought he was the man, this and that. But he did have a couple of, uh, issues... (laughs) Um, one of which being people have quoted uh, as the second coming of the Michael Jackson dangling baby blanket over the balcony, where he was filmed. I don't I think it was a I think it was one of one of his television shows or a documentary or I don't know what it was. But he had like brand newborn baby Robert. And he was holding him and like dangling him over an
1: alligator cage. A little, a little Lion King action. <laughs> yes!
0: And people were pissed! Oh, like, my went God.
1: crazy.
0: And he almost got like sued a bunch of money. People tried to like claim child abuse cases. <laughs> And then it literally resulted in Australia having to propose some new law around crocodile handling. Oh, my God. Literally because of that. (laughs) And I guess Terry had to make some statement being like, listen... Like, you know, Steve has been literally handling crocodiles since he was a child. Yeah. And if anybody can be around crocodiles and knows crocodile behavior, it's him. So he would never put our brand new child in danger of a crocodile. And nor would he have that baby in a range if he had thought the crocodile could get anywhere near it. So I don't know. Like, I don't... Who knows? Oh, and then I think they also rebuttaled it by being like, the media like shared the dumbest freaking capture of this where it's the wrong angle it looks like we're two feet from the croc but here's an actual real image of us where you can see we're several feet away from the crocodile we were nowhere near it like fuck you guys um but i thought that was (laughs) hilarious because they were coining it as the second coming of the (laughs) (laughs) michael
1: jackson blanket dangling i was like oh that's so funny when did that happen like when did the wouldn't the, the baby? Irwin wouldn't the Irwin thing have come first? When did Michael Jackson dangle the baby? Oh, I don't
0: remember. I have no clue. I feel but like it was
1: Steve, either. It doesn't matter. I'm just Steve Irwin died in 2006, so I it had to remember have when been the, before that. Yeah, when the Michael Jackson stuff was, but that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, yeah, that's Terry. I it's love it. The I, most I could find about her life. But the one thing I do want to say, which I think is very telling, is that if anybody was going to be able to take over the Australia Zoo after he died, it was fucking Terry. <laughs> like, yeah, fucking 18 and
1: running her own rehab center and shit. Like, the amount of things yeah. that she
0: conquered on her own as a yeah. woman, a young woman by herself you know before she was what 24 years old like it's ridiculous I, I
1: was just trying to figure out was how old would she have been when he died she couldn't have been um like in her early 30s well
0: let's see um yeah she wasn't old i mean yeah so
1: it's just remarkable how much she did before then and then was able to to do following his death is she amazing. was
0: 42, actually. Oh, and okay. right now, well, I think she's 55. Okay. So, yeah, she was in her early 40s. But, I mean, Steve couldn't have picked a better partner for them to tackle the wildlife conversation for together. Real. And even though he died a really sad, tragic young death, the, his entire life accomplishments and future dreams were in the hands of no better person than yes. Terry Irwin. <laughs> like... No one else could have fucking stepped up to the plate in the most horrendous, traumatic grieving experience that they could ever be in, and literally boss bitch up and handle it yeah. while taking care of two young children on her own and her whole family in the United States. It's like amazing. She's she's a very strong woman, and I have major respect for her, um, and also just love that you know she wasn't just some person that baby backed off of Steve Irwin. Yeah, Like, she was very well accomplished prior to ever meeting him, and, like, the combination of them together just created this insane power dynamic of just, like, two boss people joining forces, loving the same shit, and, like, just accomplishing it all. Yeah,
1: I appreciate so much that her, like, passion for conservation and for wildlife and everything was, like, something that she already had before she met him, and that they just complimented each other, rather than, like, her getting kind of swept up in, in that persona of his. And so. also
0: how fucking tragic to like find this person oh that my God. has everything that you could ever want and then yeah. that happen. But it's d- she insane. said it best, right?
1: Like she had her person even if it wasn't for that long. Like yeah. not every a lot of people don't get that, right? So yep. even if it's for a short time that's awesome. Pretty good.
0: Miss Terry Irwin. Uh, Let's cheers
1: to Terry. Cheers to freaking Terry. Cheers, Terry. So I'm actually really excited to guess Terry's sign. <laughs> okay, let's see what And got. I have only one answer. And so if it's wrong, I don't know where I'm going to go. <laughs> and I'm, again, using my dummies.com <laughs> astrology sign. <laughs> And I've drank quite a bit of wine up until Good. this point. But um, I'm, my guess is that she is a Taurus. Nope. Damn it. <laughs> okay. Uh,
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. You aren't too far away. My
1: terms- next guess, I think, would be a Capricorn. No, but that's a fantastic guess. Oh, God. Okay. The problem is I don't know enough for those comments to, like, hint at anything for me. I wouldn't
0: (laughs) guess it at all. I probably would have guessed Capricorn, too. I think that's a fantastic guess. Or maybe I would have said Sagittarius, because she's so free-spirited and adventurous. Let me
1: try one more, (laughs) based on my two-word trait description that I have here. Um i guess i'd say aries maybe no no okay just give it to me
0: (laughs) she is a cancer her birthday was july or is july 20th um but honestly i don't really i don't really feel any particular cancer signs from her based off of the description of her life that i've given
1: all right that was awesome i like her um, I do, too. I'm I'm definitely going to get Irwin-y this weekend. Okay. I have really done some damage. I'm about halfway through my wine bottle. Listen, it happens. And I'm going to drink some mo. I have blacked out on the podcast before. <laughs> I'm, like, a little nervous. I'm like, you know what? That's what it's all about. And I was like, don't say anything stupid. Don't drink too much. I'm like, do it. I will Tend. edit out anything <laughs>
0: sketchy. <laughs> okay. I literally, I didn't know I blacked out on my podcast. And then when and then I had, like I don't
1: remember anything.
0: I didn't remember half of the things I was what saying was in the it? episode. What episode was it? <laughs> Probably, like, one of the earlier ones. Was like, CJ? Around eight or something like that. Oh my like god,
1: that's so funny. Okay, should I start? Yes, sir. I feel like mine might be very long and boring after <laughs> yours. But you can edit me as as needed, and also, I literally got chills when you brought up who you're going to cover, because my person is also a huge player in conservation and environmental movement and ecology, and so, like, it could not be more perfect. Love it. So, I am going to cover a person who I am familiar with. I've always heard her name, because I studied environmental studies and geography, I had a I did read her very famous book, what, which I'll cover um, in college. But now, being a more mature adult, definitely feel the need to revisit it. You're <laughs> um, being tested but, on. I'd have to
0: read it in a day. Yes,
1: yes. So this is a person who I've always like been familiar with the name, but I've never known that much about, except for kind of like when she really came to fame later in her life. So I'm going to cover Rachel Carson most famously known as author of Silent Spring, which is a book that came out in the 1960s. So I'm just going to start from the beginning and work our way up.
0: All right.
1: So Rachel Louise Carson was born in 1907 in Springdale, Pennsylvania. And her mother introduced her to nature at a really young age. Um, She spent a lot of time exploring their family's 62-acre farm, and she also loved writing. So by... Age 8, she was writing books, and I meant to investigate this more, and I did not, but she was actually published by age 10, which I thought was fucking insane. Um, Like, children's books. Yeah. So, like, all of her writing was often about, like, nature, and particularly the ocean. So, also got chills when you talked about um, <laughs> uh, Terry's passion um, for the ocean and the sea. Um, So, she went on to college at Pennsylvania College for Women, and she originally studied English, but she ended up changing her major to biology, and she graduated in 1929. So, she ended up going on to John Hopkins University and graduated with a master's in zoology in 1932. So, she wanted to go on to get her doctorate, um, but in 1934, she had to leave to get a teaching gig to support her family during the Great Depression. So, uh, a few years later, or just the next year, actually, in 1935, she's only 27 years old. Her father dies suddenly, worsens an already difficult financial situation because of the depression, and she's left to take care of her aging mother. So I think it was at the recommendation of, like, one of her advisors or something. She ends up getting a job at the Fish and Wildlife Service, which was then called the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. And um, it's, like, a temp job, and she's writing for some radio programs that they're doing. So her supervisors are really impressed um, with her work, and so they ask her to start writing the info for a public brochure. And he wants to get her a full time gig, and eventually she becomes the second woman ever to be hired to the Fish and Wildlife Service for a full time professional position as a junior aquatic biologist. So, in her new job, she is responsible for analyzing and reporting on field data, mostly on fish populations, and then she writes literature um, like brochures, for instance, for the publish for the public. Excuse me. So, her career, like, and throughout this story that i will share is this like really interesting intersection of writing and literature and the sciences Mm -hmm. um so during that time um she also starts writing for the baltimore sun and other newspapers so she's like slowly becoming recognized um around kind of her area so in 1937 her older sister dies um, which leaves her the breadwinner for now again, her aging mother and two nieces, so her sister was divorced, she was a single mother, she had two young daughters, and so um Rachel ends up taking care of them along with her own mom so um, yes, she has a lot of tragedy she has a that? lot of tragedy in her life. I don't know where that dude was. I didn't try to know about that. <laughs> He
0: has a family to take care of. Um, also,
1: was kind of surprised that someone, I mean, I guess in the United States, I don't really know much about it, but I feel, I just heard something recently that, like, in Italy, I don't think divorce was even legalized till like, the 1960s or something, oh, which is bonkers. Yeah. Apparently, her sister had been divorced. Don't know where the dude went, but he wasn't around. Um, So... Over the next couple years, she does end up getting published, um, and she writes an essay that eventually becomes a book. It's called Under the Sea Wind. It gets excellent reviews, but ultimately, like, poor sales and kind of just, like, dwindles away. But by 1945, um, she ends up supervising a small writing staff at the Fish and Wildlife Service, and by 1949, she becomes chief editor of Scientific Publications. So in 1950, the next year, she, publics, she publishes a book called The Sea Around Us. And um, she's basically someone I can quote is saying it, she describes the science and poetry of the sea. So it becomes a huge success and it kind of throws her into the public eye. And people are really surprised that a woman would write a book about the sea it's something that's always been like associated with like men and sailors, and they also there's a quote from her I watched a video on p b s and I wish i could could say it verbatim, but that like people expected her to be like a big Amazonian woman <laughs> what? because she had this like affinity and like like, appreciation and connection with the ocean, but she was actually, like, a really petite and, like, pretty and soft-spoken woman, and so when she got thrown into the limelight, people were really, like, shocked by her physical appearance. Um. So anyways, this, this book becomes a huge hit. Some of um, the chapters end up published in, like, scientific journals, in the New Yorker, and it ends up sang on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks, which is a new record at that time. Wait, and and you said
0: that it was more of, like, poetry was the book?
1: Yeah, it describes the science and poetry of the sea. So, like, one of the things in her book, um, Silent Spring, which people really, like, commend her ability on is, like, People often write about science in a way that can be alienating to people that, like, aren't scientists, right? Mm -hmm. And she was also a really beautiful writer, and so she had this, like, profound way of writing about science in a way that was actually really, like, beautiful and poetic, and so it connected with a much larger audience. Mm -hmm. Got it. So two years later, the book wins a national award for nonfiction, um, and they actually end up republishing that first book that she wrote called Under the Sea Wind, which was, had good reviews but like, didn't really do well on the shelves, and it becomes a bestseller because she's like hit fame now. So because of these two book sales, she's able to quit her job um, at the Fish and Wildlife Service, and she starts writing full-time. So, in 1953, she starts library and field research on organisms in the Atlantic shore. So, again, she's, like, really fascinated with the ocean. She's doing a lot of, like, tide pooling and looking at at creatures that you'll find off the coast of the Atlantic. And in 1955, she completes the third volume of what people call, like, her Sea Trilogy. Um, And this was called The Edge of the Sea. And it was really about, like, life in a coastal ecosystem. So over the next few years, she starts kind of working on various writing projects, and slowly her interests start turning to conservation. So 1957, that tragedy that I was talking about, one of those nieces that she had raised since the 1920s ends up dying at the age of 31. So Carson, now 48, adopts her four or five-year-old, can't remember, or like read different sources. Oh, God. But yeah, so now Carson has adopted (laughs) her um, grandnephew, I don't know what that is, (laughs) but her niece's son, and so, and she's still caring for her aging mother, who now I would imagine is probably, you know, close to 70 or so, maybe older. Um, And so they end up moving to Maryland, and they spend the next year or so kind of just, like, preparing and rebuilding their life there. So, again, that was in 1957. So now I'm going to jump forward to 1962. This is where things really hit the public eye and probably what Rachel Carson's most famous for She publishes her book, Silent Spring, which is an environmental science book documenting the adverse environmental effects caused by the indiscriminate use of pesticides. So Rachel has always been aware of like the balance of nature and this idea of ecology that like all living systems work together and affect each other. And she's always understood kind of the dependence on nature by animals and humans but this was also in a time of, like, huge technological advancement. So mm-hmm. people were, like, all for, like, man's control of the world and the environment. And so Rachel's vision was often, like, not, not kind of taken or welcomed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rachel had been concerned about the use of synthetic pesticides since the 1940s. So for over 20 years now, it had been something that she was aware of. And there were other scientists that were looking into it as well. Um, but basically, pesticides had been developed and used I did not know this um, until I read this book during World War II, actually, to prevent the spread of disease among military men. So interesting. Um, in one of the PBS documentaries I read, it claimed that disease actually killed more people than enemy fire um, during wars. <clears throat> Dang. One of the big things was typhus fever, which was the result of body lice. And so, yeah. And so, um, in 1939, right at the beginning of World War II, a Swiss chemist discovered that a um, specific insecticide called DDT would kill insects and kill lice and eliminate typhus fever. I'm going to try and read to you what DDT stands for, and I feel like it's going to be pretty comical. I was practicing earlier today. (laughs) Um, so DDT is dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. That actually was better than I thought it was going to (laughs) go. Unless someone corrects me and is like, that's bullshit. Um, so Rachel took issue with a number of pesticides and insecticides that were being used, but DDT is kind of like a heavy hitter in her book that she focuses a lot on. So after World War II, and they were like, oh, DDT is amazing. Look at all these insects and pests that it kills, they started using it on farmlands, and they were commercially using it at a massive scale, and um, it ended up in this, like, incredible crop boom, and so everyone's like, oh my god, this is wonderful, we should use this stuff everywhere, so from 1945 to 1955, the U.S. went from spraying 125 million to 600 million pounds of DDT every year. So they're airily dropping this um, from planes over not just farmland, but over private residences and public lands as well. And people have no way to to oppose it or stop it. And so there were... But they know were...
0: it's happening. Like, they're seeing... They're, like, walking Yeah, they're the seeing it. Like, oh, my it. God, something's, like, falling from the sky yeah. from a plane.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, a lot of people, though, I think were under the impression that this was, like, a healthy and positive thing for them. Yeah. But there were also a number of individuals who were, like, concerned and upset, and there were actually lawsuits brought um, against, like, Big Ag that were ultimately um lost but actually did play a role in rachel carson's um silent spring book a lot of the like information that was presented in those lawsuits was used so when the landowners did bring lawsuit they lost but they were granted right to gain injunctions against like future issues that would happen i guess future injunctions um but or to gain injunctions against future damage so i don't know exactly if that means like stopping future spraying on their own lands. But whatever the case, it was like, yeah, this happened. And that's that. So Rachel started to become concerned. Again, she had already kind of like had this on her radar for like 20 years. Um, and she would write to magazines tra- kind of to um, write exposés and like bring this to light. And she was often turned down to be- turned down because these were like huge chemical companies um, you know, it would be like going up against, like, Exxon or yeah. something today. And um, magazines didn't want to lose their advertisers. So basically most of the the mags and um, newspapers would turn her away because they just didn't want to be involved. So in January of 1958, Rachel Carson receives a letter from her friend, Olga Huckins, who lived in an area of Massachusetts where the state was trying to get rid of mosquitoes. And they had used planes to spray a mixture of fuel oil and DDT all over the area. Like, imagine if you're in your backyard and, like, a plane just comes by and is, like, air bombing you with fuel oil that and pesticides. That happened
0: in L.A. <laughs> that happened, like, a couple months ago.
1: What? You're in L.A. <laughs> I did not know that.
0: Yeah. All over, a, like, a lower-income children's,
1: like, preschool. Oh, my God. Yeah. Of, well, of
0: it was like I think I don't remember what jet line it was, but Delta actually I think it was Delta, and they were flying into LA, and they were going over like Baldwin Park or some some area that's like you know, not the nicest neighborhood in Los sure. Angeles County, and they had some fuel issue, so they opened oh, okay. the tanks and dropped all the fuel, oh, and it literally landed on God. a school that was out at preschool, and the kids were covered in oil, crying.
1: That is <laughs> insane. Yeah! Um, so, the reason for this is a little different. Um, still fucking nuts. Um, I'm mean, going to have to Google that. <laughs> People are pissed. Out. There's lawsuits. It's the whole thing. That is insane. And when they did it, did they just expect that it wasn't going to land on anyone they, below? That They, they were basically like over... were like, there was
0: nothing we could do. We had to get wow. rid of the fuel. So this is what we did. And it's really unfortunate. It landed on an entire preschool or something.
1: That is bonkers. <laughs> okay. So... So Olga writes to Rachel and says that they've sprayed all this stuff all over, like, her land around her home, and they claimed that it was harmless, but the morning after the spraying, she finds a bunch of her favorite birds dead outside of her home, and the spraying hasn't even killed all of the mosquitoes. In fact, like, later that year, there's even more than there were before. And so Huckins writes to Carson asking if she knew someone in Washington who could help to prevent future spraying because she had worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is um, a federal agency. So it was pretty much like this letter from uh, her friend Olga that kind of inspired her work on this, on what would become this four-year project uh, to write this book that would later be titled Silent Spring, in which she basically set out to gather examples of environmental damage and human illness attributed to DDT. So what was really unique about Carson, kind of what we touched on before, is that she knew how to present scientific information in a compelling way. She knew that all things existed in this balanced ecosystem, and she knew how to write about them really eloquently. And so ultimately, I think a big success of her book was that she was able to reach a much broader audience of Mm -hmm. people who kind of connected the science also with this like emotional connection that I think we all have with nature. So um, as her research progressed, she ends up finding tons of scientists who are already doing work to document the physiological and environmental effects of pesticides. She also took advantage of her personal connection with government scientists who supplied her with confidential information. Um, I heard on one of the uh, documentaries that I listened to that some people actually lost their jobs for sharing um, some of their, like, insider info with Rachel but the info that they shared with her made it really clear that, like, Big Ag was downplaying all of these findings that were proving that this was, like, really detrimental to the environment and to people. And they were also misleading the public about the safety of insecticide use. So they'd, like, play these commercials of, like, children, like, outside on playgrounds, like, eating lunch, and they're, like, bombing them with insecticides. And oh like, look how God. wonderful this is. We're killing all the insects, and these children are so healthy and happy. So, like, word starts to spread about the work that Rachel's doing and her book coming out, and um, by 1959, the USDA's Agricultural Research Service responds to the criticism with a public service film called The Fire Ant on Trial, (laughs) and they're basically, like, criminalizing all of these, like, pests that like the fire ant, for instance, that are present in the United States. Not to say that the fire ant is not a pest, but... Um, <laughs> the fire ant! But Carson characterized it as flagrant propaganda. Like, they, it was like just that. It was propaganda that was just like meant to instill fear into people about like the threat of these insects and ignored the dangers of spraying the pesticides and the threats that they pose to human and wildlife. Um, and so that also uh, was the same year, which again is just kind of to make a point that these were issues that were happening. Um, it, it happened at the same time as the Great Cranberry Scandal, <laughs> which is when an, between 1957 and 1959, um, crops of U.S. cranberries were found to contain high levels of the herbicide aminotriazole which caused cancer in laboratory rats, and the sale of all cranberry products was halted. Dang. Um, so, I mean, just, like, goes to show, like, this wasn't something that Rachel was just making up. Like, these were real things that were happening and um, causing threats to the environment and to people. Um, so, by 1960, she had investigated and documented hundreds of individual incidents. So, again, she was getting information from scientists who were studying the effect on like bird populations and on fish populations and on human illness and um she ended up deciding that the book would be named silent spring and the name was what she imagined the bleak future of the world would be with the absence of birdsong so think about like in the springtime there's like all this activity of birds around and yeah it's just crazy to think about um So, in January of 1960, back to that tragedy theme um, that Rachel has conquered throughout her life, um, she finds an ulcer and uh, ends up with multiple infections that leave her bedridden and delay completion of her book. In March of that year, as she's nearing recovery, she discovers cysts in her breasts and has a mastectomy. And the doctor kind of advises that the procedure is precautionary, but by December of that year, uh, it was determined to be malignant, which means it's an issue and it's going to progress. And it had also metastasized, meaning it had spread to other parts of her body. So she's in the middle of like trying to publish this book, which is not just publishing a book, but also like combating all of these, like, huge agencies and, um, industries that are against her, and she's also ill, and she's also concerned that she has to hide her illness because, you know, she's talking about the, the illness that these chemicals might cause, and so she fears that her being ill is going to be used against her and, like, make her book seem biased. Yep. So.
0: that's annoying.
1: Yeah. So, the main argument um of silent spring is that pesticides have detrimental effects on the environment um she argues that they should more properly be termed biocides because their effects are rarely limited to the target pests and um they also result in a thing called bioaccumulation which still happens forever will happen um it happens today with a lot of natural and um, unnatural toxins but that basically like A small insect or a small animal might ingest this toxin, but as it moves its way up the food chain, it starts having really severe impacts on those higher predators that are now accumulating it in, like, much higher doses. Um, and then, as I touched on earlier, she also accuses the chemical industry of intentionally spreading disinformation, um... And most of the book is devoted to the pesticide's effects on natural ecosystems, but four chapters do also detail cases of human pesticide poisoning, cancer, and other illnesses. So she is facing fierce criticism up until the publication, while she is also going through radiation therapy for her Ugh. breast cancer. Um, and leading up To the September 1962 publication, Um, she gets fierce opposition from a couple of big hitters in the chem industry, DuPont and Velsicol, I might be saying that incorrectly, who actually threaten legal action against um, the publishing house, which is Hutton Mifflin, and also um, the New Yorker and the Audubon Society who were, like, planning to release, like, features of her book. And all of them were like, screw you, we know this is legit. Like, we, we're not falling for your threats. Like, we're still going to publish this, which I thought was great. Um, but Rachel, this is comical, not for her, but just because it's so ridiculous, was also personally attacked. Um, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture... Ezra Taft Benson, in a letter to President Dwight Eisenhower, reportedly concluded that because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. What? I tried to find more information on that. That was all I had. But absurd. Um... That same individual was also quoted as saying that he wondered why a spinster with no children was so worried about genetics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was called a hysterical woman by many people. And one ag expert um, was also quoted saying to a reporter, you're never going to satisfy organic farmers or emotional women in garden clubs.
0: Wow, so, what fucking psychos. Yeah,
1: so despite the fact that she had a scientific background, um, her soft demeanor and just her being a woman made her subject to a lot of scrutiny from all the, like, cocky, arrogant assholes in the chem industry. What but a shock! the silver lining in Beauty is that all of this campaigning against her actually backfired and increased public awareness of the potential (laughs) pesticide dangers and, like, totally boosted her book sales. That's incredible. It was all good for Rachel. Um, Pesticide use became a major public issue um, after her book and especially after she went on a CBS report TV special on her book that aired Um, A few months later, in April of 1963, uh, reaction from the estimated audience of 10 to 15 million individuals were overwhelmingly positive, and uh, the program ended up kind of igniting a a congressional review of pesticide dangers, and the public released of a pesticide report by the President's Science Advisory Committee. And in one of her last public appearances, she actually testified before JFK's scientific advisory committee, and they issued reports in um, about a month later of six in sixty three, pretty much backing everything that she had said in her book.
0: Wow. Well, that's awesome.
1: Yes. but not awesome. Weekend from cancer that next year she became ill with a respiratory virus. Um, In February of 64, she found out she had anemia, and ultimately she ended up dying of a heart attack in April of 1964, only in her late 50s. So what's crazy is that she died just, like, two years after this book was published.
0: That is nuts.
1: But her legacy lived far beyond her and still is is present today. Um, One quote I have here says... Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to sell pollution as the necessary underside of progress so easily or uncritically. And so she's basically credited for her immense contributions to the deep ecology movement and the overall strength of grassroots environmental movement since the 1960s. It's interesting because a lot of people say she is very influential in the rise of eco-feminism and just feminism in general, but a lot of people that knew her closely would say that, like, she didn't really see herself as a feminist. She just saw herself as a scientist. who happened to be a woman? Mm -hmm. Um, But probably her most direct legacy to the environmental movement was the campaign to ban the use of DDT in the United States. So, um, basically... Years after her book came out um, and kind of set the foundation, the Environmental Defense Fund was created, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to preserving the environment. And In 1972, uh, after a number of lawsuits were brought against the government um, to establish a citizen's right to a clean environment, the EPA issued a cancellation order for DDT uh, based on its adverse environmental effects to wildlife as well as potential human health risks.
0: Crazy.
1: So, super long, but I have a couple other things to add. Get One on One thing I feel like I have to acknowledge, because I did read it, is that, this shocked me, I've never heard this before, but many conservatives actually blame Carson for the loss of lives. The reason being that after DDT was banned... Um, number of deaths caused by malaria in other countries, such as Africa, increased immensely. And so a lot of people blame Rachel for that. But what is important to note is that, again, Rachel Carson died just two years after this book came out, and she never actually called for an outright ban of DDT. The argument that she made was that even if they did not have Adverse environmental side effects. Their indiscriminate overuse was counterproductive. It would ultimately create an insect resistance to the pesticides, and it would make them useless in targeting those populations. And so, her issue wasn't necessarily with their like presence, but with the the irresponsible and like rash use of them. Hmm. Um, but oh, so this is actually a quote that I have from her. It said. It is not my contention that chemical insecticides must never be used. I do contend that we have put poisons and biologically potent chemicals indiscriminately into the hands of persons largely or wholly ignorant of their potentials for harm. We have subjected an enormous number of people to contact with these poisons without their consent and often without their knowledge. So again, she wasn't against it entirely, but the irresponsible use of it was what she took real issue with. But just to note, in 2006, the World Health Organization, which we have been hearing a lot about lately, actually announced a renewed commitment to fighting malaria with DDT, mostly in Africa. So it is still used um, in some places in a more responsible manner now.
0: Are they using it to kill off all the fucking locusts out there?
1: Um, Well, I think it's mosquitoes because of malaria, but I don't know its impact on locusts. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Locust is like destroying Africa right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it, what its effect on locusts is. I would imagine that they must be using some other sort of pesticides, if not DDT, um, that would have have an effect on locusts. But apparently not, since they're fucking shit up. <laughs> it's like God! Um, and then my last little shout out that I wanted to make <laughs> to myself and my work. <laughs> is that um, Rachel Carson actually has some connection, in a way, to um, the work that I do. So I work for the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, and we um, monitor the fall migration of raptors through the Marin Headlands. And in her book, Silent Spring... Um, Rachel actually used data from the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in Pennsylvania, which is one of the earliest, it's one of the first hawk refuge sites in the United States, but also one of the earliest hawk count sites, which is what we do out here in the Marin Headlands. And they're counting the number of species and, um, tracking the ages of those raptors that are flying by. And so she actually used data from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, to um support her argument that DDT was affecting bald eagle populations because what she found when she looked at their numbers over like the past 20 years or whatever is that the number of adults was actually not declining but the number of juveniles was and um ultimately what had been discovered is that um a number of of fish eating birds had been affected uh, peregrine falcons along with Bald eagles were nearly extinct before the ban of DDT. Um, So were brown pelicans. And the reason was that uh, DDT actually interfered with their ability to produce strong eggshells. And so their eggshells were so thin that they'd often break during incubation, like just from the mothers sitting on them. Mm -hmm. But usually if... Uh, an eggshell breaks like say from a predator or something or like in a more obvious way a a bird can actually lay another clutch like they can see that like oh shit one of these eggs is gone I better like pop out another one or another few
0: that?
1: yeah but they wouldn't even know that they had broken because they would just be sitting on them and they were just so thin they'd almost just yeah. kind of like collapse or crumble and ultimately after the ban of DDT Bald Eagles and Peregrine Falcons made a huge comeback um, after DDT was banned and the Endangered Species Act was put into place. And so at my work, our work is to collect this long-term data set that people can look back on and, like, learn information about, like, climate change and other environmental Mm -hmm. factors. And so it's just a great example um, of of how important that work is. How cool! Yeah. So I have a couple... um, Quotes from Rachel. Yes. And also, shout out just a bunch of random awards that she won because she's so badass. She got the Audubon Medal from the National Audubon Society and the uh, Geographical Medal from the American Geographical Society. After her death, she was actually awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She had some stamps posted um, uh, honoring her. She was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame. There is a college named after her at UC Santa Cruz. Her home in Maryland is actually an an historical landmark. There are some trails named after her in Pittsburgh, uh, which is near where she was born. And there's actually a bunch of elementary schools throughout the nation that are named after her, which I thought was
0: pretty Crazy, that's awesome. Yeah. Wait, how is UC Santa Cruz named after her?
1: It's like, you know how they have colleges like like at, at... uh SF State, you'd have, like, help, like, the college, business college of blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, okay. it's not, like, the college itself, but, like, the yeah, departments, certain. I guess. Yep. I don't yep. know. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, a couple great quotes from Rachel. And just, I feel like she, the message that Rachel sent in, like, the current world of just, like, climate change and man trying to, like, control the world and realizing that we can't, is, like, so relevant. Um, And she was just, like, way ahead of her time. This first quote says it all. But man is a part of nature, and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. Yes. Yup. Hell yeah. Um, Another of hers, the more clearly we can focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for destruction. And then the next two are both from her book *Silent Spring*. Uh, she says, "Nature has introduced great variety into the landscape, but man has displayed a passion for simplifying it. Thus, he undoes the built-in checks and balances by which nature holds the species within bounds." And finally, short and to the point: if nature, in nature, nothing exists alone. And Love it. it. So that is Rachel Carson. That's awesome. And I probably butchered a bunch of that stuff, but (laughs) no, it was good. There was just once I it was finding all of her like pre Silent Spring stuff was easier, but once I got into like the politics and Mm, the science of her book, I was like, oh my god, so. Someone out there has something to correct me with, but I think I mostly got the point across. So,
0: nobody has ever corrected us on anything. So don't well, worry about it. Well, soon
1: you're going to blow up and you're going to have to make a corrections <laughs> corner where people are going to write in and be like that is it's not It's going right. to be
0: like, "Oh, I'm sorry. You mean the episode I posted 2 years ago. Let me address it." <laughs> Oh my god. I'm so happy you covered her. Also, like that's it's insane when these freaking coincidences happen and we I know. have similar people. That I know, keeps I happening. as soon as you said who
1: you were doing, I was like, Oh my god. It keeps and happening. Something so like she had a pretty like successful life anyways. But what's really interesting I think about her is also that like this like profound legacy that she left, like these crazy yeah. impacts We're just two years before she passed away.
0: Yeah. Which I
1: think should be inspiring to everyone, you know? Oh, hell yeah. When you feel like time's fleeting and, like, you're getting old and it's, like, you can do so many things. And, yeah, she's just amazing.
0: (laughs) I will forever have determination and motivation that my time has yet to come purely based off the life of julia child episode two when she did not hit fame until she was in her 50s yes so i got
1: time all right we got time we're taking the scenic route
0: um also when you did that when you said one of her comment or quotes about how I don't remember it, but about how, um, when man's against nature, Mm -hmm. it's, they're really against themselves. Yeah. Did you hear that since quarantine has happened, LA has had the best air quality in like all of
1: time? Yeah. It's like insane.
0: Honestly, that alone should be a massive wake-up call that, like, we do not all need to be wasting our lives sitting in fucking traffic to move from one location to the next to just destroy the
1: environment. I will say, quarantine fucking sucks, but (laughs) I do really, truly hope that we come out of this with, like, some lessons learned and some, some lifestyle changes that we can all... Adopt like myself, a hundred percent included. Like just saying how I used to go out all the time. Not that I was, you know, driving, taking my Ubers and and my thirty eight bus, but um, but just to like step back. Like for me, I thought that quarantine would be like holy shit. Like I can't be social. Like what's going on? And I've actually found it as, like, an opportunity to be, like, oh, like, this is actually nice. Like, look at all this time I have to, like, mm-hmm. do these things that I care about and connect with, you know, friends and family and, like, get outside more. I've I've seen and taken in so much more of my neighborhood that, like, oh, I yeah. pass through all the time that I, I feel like when I'm looking, I'm always just, like, staring up, like, looking at, like, the architecture and the trees and I hope that I just... Take everything a little sm- a little slower as I move forward mm-hmm. from quarantine, and I'm more like thoughtful about all my decisions.
0: That was really really good. I'm honestly super stumped on what her zodiac sign is. Okay. <laughs> I like have a, I, ha- I feel like I have a couple guesses, but I'm not totally confident in them. But I'm gonna shoot for my number one, okay. which is Aquarius.
1: No. Fuck. <laughs>
0: All right. If it's not Aquarius, then I'm going to go with Virgo. No,
1: No, not the (laughs) Virg. Was she a Pisces? No. What is it? (laughs) Okay, so she is a Gemini.
0: Oh, I was going to say Gemini, and I was like, she's too organized. As
1: as I (laughs) shared on episode 36, I'm looking at my you know, little, like, printable cheat sheet of (laughs) two-word descriptions for all the signs. But what actually is really interesting to me is that the two words used to describe Gemini are versatility, which I was like, eh, whatever, but curiosity. And Mm -hmm. that's what struck me is that, like, I feel like everything that Rachel did was, like, inspired by her curiosity Mm -hmm. of the natural world and, like, the way that the world exists and works and so, I, I thought that, that struck me a little bit. I
0: was like, okay, That's awesome." I see you. So, when you were in your major in college, was she, like, the queen of the, the the topic or the category?
1: So, I definitely had to read Silent Spring in college. I don't barely remember any of it. I don't even know if I read the whole thing, to be totally <laughs> frank. Um, a little disappointed in myself. But, yeah, I've always known who she was. Um... She actually, this is interesting, at the um, Cal Academy, where I used to work, the California Academy of Sciences. I still actually, pre-quarantine, work there giving tours sometimes. Um, There is a mystery person who has put masking tape, like, art, up on, like, various floors, it's really strange. I'll have to send you a picture sometime. What is it of? They're really cool. Like one of them is like an astronaut and it has some like inspirational quote like out of like, <laughs> and a little just bubble. they somewhere? Yeah, it's like this masking tape, like intricate art and no one knows who it is, which is They don't get caught while they're standing
0: there putting some like Well, that's tape the thing is they wall? obviously
1: must do it when like no one's there. Which is like, who is this person? Like, are they a, a custodian or yeah, like a security? Someone like, someone there, who works right? at night. Yeah, but like, because people are there, like, there's security staff and there's custodial staff. And I mean, you could get into the building at any time, I guess, if you have your badge and like security's like, why are you here? I don't know. So, I imagine there has to be, like, a couple people who are, who do know who it is, but it's, like, a total mystery. It's fascinating. (laughs) It's, like, blue painter's tape. These, like, beautiful, amazing pictures. And one of them is Rachel Carson. Like, Um, he literally
0: made a tape picture of her face? Yes.
1: Yes. What the fuck? (laughs) I'm not shitting you.
0: That is insane. Um, and we do a I need to find it?
1: I don't know if I do. I'll try Wait, and find it. To that would be great it. for the gram. I a,
0: yes. <laughs> I need it for the gram. Hunt this shit. I down. mean, I'm
1: definitely taken a picture of it at some point in my life. So I'll have to to see if I can track something down.
0: Or if you like texted it to somebody, it might still be in that text chain. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, she's definitely like a heavy hitter in the environmental world. And it's funny because my boss um Gives, like, an orientation every year to, like, new volunteers. And he has a whole spiel about Rachel Carson and Hawk Mountain Sanctuary and the data that she collected there for the book. So, How cool. Um, yeah, she's badass. I knew this was going to happen. I just tried to reach for the microphone as if it was my wine glass. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Well. <laughs> so that means it's time to go <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's fantastic.
0: Uh, Alright, well we freaking um, killed it. That was
1: so fun. I love that our our ladies were so in tune with each other. I bet you Terry was a fan of Rachel Carson.
0: Fucking, well you know what I was going to say was she, Rachel Carson died this year that Terry was born.
1: Oh, that's so fascinating. I didn't even make that connection. You yeah,
0: so I wonder if Re-
1: her at any point
0: in Terry's even just upbringing... Or, in once she got into like conservation, if that might have been somebody that you know was yeah. highlighted as this trailblazer, I'm of women. sure
1: because I was reading an article somewhere that was like, most people under the age of 40 don't even know who Rachel Carson is. But I, as I read that, I was like, I beg to differ. I think anybody who's in like the environmental field has absolutely yeah. heard of rachel carson and i can't imagine a world where terry wasn't introduced or like influenced well, yeah you
0: would think so they would had had to have somehow yeah. in their research or the, their connections networking had have heard that name at some point Woo-hoo-hoo! all right all right that Thank was awesome thanks for having me for another fantastic episode And, again, another unplanned and totally (laughs) themed episode, which means it's just meant to be. (laughs) It is just meant to be. All right. Well, that wraps it up for number 40. And we will be back soon. All right. See you next time. Adios, Chiquitas. Bye. Bye. Bye.